Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Would you open your Bibles, please, and turn to the New Testament, the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to take a week off of 1 Corinthians. And the reason is that um, we, we have a lot of pressures as a church having to do with money, and I want to explain that. I'm not apologetic about talking about money, because you'll see the Apostle Paul talks very, very specifically about money. Jesus did. I always tell people that it, I think one of the sweeter things in Scripture is Jesus telling his disciples, look at how much he put in. Look at how much he put Look at how much she put in. You know, she put in more. You know, and you don't think of that, but it's really fascinating to think of Jesus with his disciples pointing out how much different people are giving. <laughs> You know, it's, it's like seems to violate every rule that any church has ever had about the offering plate, you know. But um, <clears throat> this last week, I went through about a day and a half of serious anger. And you'll all be happy to know that I did not focus it on Pastor Carell. He escaped me this time. <laughs> This time I focused it all on my son-in-law, Lucas. It's safe because he lives in my basement. So, you know, what can he do? I mean, you know, I'm going to come upstairs and bite you, you know. Um, <clears throat> but here's the reason. We as pastors work hard. And specifically we work hard every year at the conference because at the conference we're almost always saying to men who are pastors and elders of other churches things that are very difficult to say to them this year for instance talking about the nature of the church's witness on homosexuality and how the church is not being faithful well if you can imagine being uh, in a situation where you have to say things to people that they don't want to hear and this is your main job. You do it in counseling with couples. You do it from the pulpit. You, and, and I know you don't want to hear. I mean, I know you love me for it, right? In the same way you love the doctor when he tells you to take off your clothes. and You know, I mean, you love your doctor. You have to, right? You love your pastor, <laughs> you know? But you don't want to hear me, right? Be truthful. I mean, I just spent it time in my office with a man that didn't, didn't want to hear me. And typically, uh, about the only person that wants to hear me is my wife. And so the reason that I was upset this last week is I don't want to have to be the one that tells you to fulfill your obligations financially. Okay? Now, those of you who are new here, let this one slide off your shoulders. (laughs) 
But we have, you know that we as a staff have taken steps to take the load off you this year, but we're at the, it, precisely at the same point this year we were last year. And we only have a few more weeks to make that mortgage payment in May. And I want you to honor those who teach you in such a way that we don't have to worry about money. Okay? And I know you can do it because... I've done calculations. I I hate math, but I'm good at calculating in my brain. And we can do it. Now, let let me channel your pain for a second so that you know that I love you. Because if I can't tell you what you're thinking, I don't love you. I do love you, so here's what you're thinking. There's no end to this. Right? That's what a lot of you are thinking. Admit it. Raise your hand. Yeah, there's no end to this, right? Okay. You're right, there isn't, but this is the reason. We are coming at the tail end of a generation of evangelicals who have decided that they're only going to have as many children as they can afford to send to a good college. Okay? And their churches are, at this point, vacuous. Do you know the word vacuous? It's unhelpful. You know, their churches... What Rita Cuffey called them was churches where you go Sunday morning to hear a nice, helpful thought for the week. And if I ever preach a sermon to you that's a helpful thought for the week, shoot me. (laughs) What a waste of the pulpit. (laughs) My goal is to get you mad. And if I haven't gotten you mad, I'm not helpful. That was my mother's view on raising a son, so I'm just channeling my mother, right? Now... If you live at the tail end of this unbelievable celebration of evangelicalism in America, which is what the last 50 years have been, you know, everybody's an evangelical, we have mega churches, we have publishing companies, we're just like so proud of ourselves, right? (laughs) Okay, guess what's going to happen is the church is going to be weak. Very, very weak because the church has sort of traded on the culture's sort of Christianese And so the church depends on the culture to do the the work of keeping everybody in line, and the church gets flabby. The church stops disciplining the fornication of the pastor's children. You all with me? And then it doesn't discipline me when I run off with a secretary, and then it doesn't discipline me when I try to remarry, and it doesn't discipline my son when he's gay. And what we've seen is this succession of unfaithfulnesses that at the time, none of them looked real significant in and of themselves. You know, it didn't seem like much when all of a sudden all the worship of the country got taken over by women except the pulpit. No, no, we're going to have a man in the pulpit. But you got a woman leading the music, you got a woman playing the piano, you got women reading scripture, you got women passing out the communion plates. It's women, 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 right? I mean, I like women. I do. Why did you laugh like that? I do like women. All right. So that was how we met feminism, by bending over backwards to prove to everybody that we really like women. Right? And then fornication. And now we're at homosexuality, and we're just bending over backwards, telling everybody how, you know, I think that... I and, and I'm and, and you know and, and I'm 
and where and and all of a sudden, a few people in a few places say to themselves, you know, I smell it and this isn't working and and we're going to stop and we're going to back up and we're going to try to correct all the mistakes that the rich, huge evangelical church has made. And we're not going we're not going to ride the elephant anymore. Okay? We're not going to do it because that elephant's palsied and diabetic. <laughs> and it's going to collapse under me and when an elephant collapses it's going to hurt me. All right? And so what happens is when you start over your wife stays home because you have too many children to put them in daycare. She couldn't have any job that would allow her to put them in daycare because she couldn't make enough money to have all those kids in daycare if she all of a sudden believes that she should give life. She should be a life giver, right? And then the father gets bitter because he has this unbelievable uh, uh, thing at his rear chasing him, trying to bite him, and it's like four, six, eight children. And then you adopt some, and you have foster kids, and so all of a sudden, the men have to be men, right? The old kind of men, you know? And then the wife has to fight against bitterness because all of her peers are climbing the corporate ladder and are very successful, And then the husband has to come home and reassure his wife that she's doing what she should be doing, and he's had a hard day, and he doesn't want to talk. (laughs) And then they come to church, and the church says, ah, we have a hundred children, four and under, we have to build. And they just got done building this building. And they say, well, how about let's get get rid of a few of our pastors, because then we could use the money from the pastors to build, and we say, well, we got a lot of pastoral care in this church because we're all starting over. And we got a lot of kids. How about if we start a school too? And, and how about we have two Christian schools, one for weirdos and one for normos? <laughs> and how about if we staff those schools too? And then we'll be able to pay for the schools as we pay our, in, our, our property taxes for the public schools. And how about if we don't get a building like the other churches in town because we're starting from scratch, and, and how about our wives don't work? Okay, are you all with me? My daughter Heather is looking daggers. What's wrong? What have I not brought up? <laughs> You're just uptight, right? <laughs> Listen, if you look in the New Testament, you see that churches have personalities. And that's what we're going to be seeing today in our scripture text. And I know that God has been pleased to give a lot of work to us. I know that. And trust me when I tell you, there is a lot of work we do that I'm not bringing up. Because I can't speak of it publicly, but I'm about to leave with two of our pastors to do one of the nastiest jobs you could imagine. 
And we all get tired, and I just want to spend a few minutes this morning trying to encourage you. Don't, don't, don't grow weary of well-doing. Don't grow weary. Because my dad used to say that God is no man's debtor. It's impossible for you to outgive your love to God. You can't do it. You can't... Out- you can't out-generous God because he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And whatever you give to God will come back to you pressed down and running over. And I'm here at 63 to testify to you that this is true. Okay? I didn't rehearse those things so we feel superior. I rehearsed those things so that you realize that it's a day of reform. And the days of reform are hard. They're very hard. Because you don't have the legacy. (laughs) You know, you're not inheriting the buildings. You're not inheriting the doctrine. You're having to go back to first principles. And it's just like Nehemiah rebuilding Jerusalem and the city walls. That's what we're doing. And so we all, we all have to be in it, whole hog. You know, I often tell young men that are soft, you know, God made men to be hard, and I tell soft men that like to watch movies and not work, you know. I don't know if any of you know any men like that. Oh, come on, just say, yeah, that's me. Okay. I often tell men like that that what they want to do is they, they want to get married and have children. Because you just, you wouldn't believe how, how, how firming up it is to get married and have children. <laughs> I think probably most of the men in this church would still be soft if they hadn't gotten married and had children. I mean, you know? That's how I got hard. All of a sudden, I looked behind me and it's like, whoa, yikes, I better run. In 2 Corinthians 8, what we have here is, is a church, the Corinthian church, who had made a commitment financially, and they weren't keeping it, okay? And the Apostle Paul is a good mom, a good dad, and he kind of encourages them and slaps them around a little bit and then promises them and then says, it's only God that's doing it, and that's the whole text. They'd made a commitment. Oh, he also uses envy, He also gets them to envy the churches of Macedonia. And it's quintessential Apostle Paul. Where you're at any one point in this text, you don't know which thing he's doing because he's doing so many things at the same time. But the encouraging thing is that the people had made commitments that were financial and they weren't keeping the commitments. Or they needed to be exhorted to be more zealous, more generous, more faithful. All right? 
And it's not because they were such a terrible group of people, although the Corinthians were pretty terrible, actually. Um, But on this, it's not because they're so terrible, it's just that they need to recommit themselves. So, let's hear the word of God, which is eternally true, and don't don't pity yourself being in this church. I never before have been out in the hallway when all the kids come out. It boggled my mind. If, if you want to have, like, an LSD trip, go in the center of the hallway and watch this, this monstrous mass of humanity that has come from somewhere. <laughs> Yikes. You know that we're turning kids, not you visitors, but other people's kids that are here, do you know that we're turning them away from the nursery? Yikes. Okay. Here's God's word. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So we urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything in faith, and utterance and knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich." I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. But now, finish doing it also, so that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may be also the completion of it by your ability. For if the readiness is present, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he doesn't have. For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we do ask that you will keep us from growing weary in well-doing. I thank you for the faithfulness of the giving of these men and women and their children, and I pray that you will help us to finish the work that you've set before us. And I ask now that the words of my mouth and this meditation of every heart here will be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, what are the circumstances of this text? Well, the Apostle Paul is writing the church in Corinth a letter, encouraging them, among other things, 
to grow in their grace of giving. And you notice how at the very beginning he uses another church as an example. Do you see this? He starts by seeding envy. Does that make sense to you? He's trying to get them to envy the church in Macedonia at the beginning. We wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given to the churches of Macedonia. So the Macedonian churches were very, very um, sweet in their giving. This would have been the churches of, uh, of, of Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. And the Apostle Paul holds them up as an example. And this is a good thing for you to do in your raising of your children. You know, if you have a child that is good in an area the other child's bad at, and you can do it without causing sibling hatred and bitterness, hold up the one that's good at something so that the envy of the others for you holding them up as an example will cause, will motivate them to ascend to the level, and this is what the Apostle Paul is doing. The Corinthians are not of the excellence of the Macedonians in their giving. He says, well, have you you seen the grace of God at work in the Macedonians? Then he begins to describe to the Corinthians how God has worked through the Macedonians in their giving. And here's what he says. He says that in a great ordeal of affliction, so the Macedonians were suffering persecution and great difficulties when they were doing this giving. But not just that, their abundance of joy and their what? Do you see it? Their deep poverty. So they suffered affliction and they were poor. Now, what about the Corinthians, eh? Remember what we've talked about with the Corinthians. Were they a poor church? Oh, no. You can't have the sexual decadence um, of Sodom and Corinth without having the wealth of Sodom and Corinth, okay? And so decadence comes with wealth. And so the Corinthian church was not a a poor church at all. It it was now, uh, had inherited the wealth of centuries of the most sophisticated civilizations in the ancient world, right? It was a crossroads. It was a trading place. They had all the wealth of their uh, religion and their temples and art, and it was just a filthy rich community. And so this adds to the poignancy of the Apostle Paul getting them to envy the Macedonians, because it would be like us saying to somebody in Bloomington, you know, you know the grace of the church in Terre Haute. Right? Or Bedford. You know the grace of God at work in the church in Martinsville. It would be like telling people up in Carmel that they should, you know, well, never mind. I know what it would be in Chicago. I don't know. Well, it would be Speedway, right? Yeah, it would have to be Speedway. You know, you get Carmel to envy Speedway, right? And so he talks about how even the environment of the church in, in uh, Macedonia was not conducive to the work that they were doing. But that's why it's so important that he talks about the grace of God. Because he says the grace of God 
which has been given. And then you notice down in verse 6, he says, this gracious work as well. And then verse 7, this gracious work as well. So this is a typical thing in Scripture where you know what grace is. Grace is unmerited favor. Okay, it's a gift from God that nobody deserves. So what he's saying is that their generosity was God's grace at work through them. And yet he causes the Corinthians to envy them. And so it's weird because what you want to do is you want to say, grace never has anything to do with me. It's all of God. Well, that's true. But grace has an unbelievable amount to do with you. My favorite place in the Bible where this is done is where... The Bible gives us this command, the Apostle Paul, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at will and work within you. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God's working out your salvation with fear and trembling. And it does sound like a contradiction, you know, but that's what grace is. Grace is something that does not cause us to be fat and complacent. And when I do this, it means I feel hopeless to get this across. How is it that we've never had a period in history when there's been more gabbing about grace in the church than today? I mean, I, I went to church a couple weeks ago where, I kid you not, the song that we sang was something on the order, and it wasn't even interesting music. Okay, but it was something along the order of um, grace, grace, me and grace and God and passionate grace and me and and oh 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 oh. <laughs> have you have you heard that song? All of you've heard that song because it's like every church I go to, that's the song they sing. The rhythm and the tune change. In the Bible, it never uses grace in such a way that it causes us to be fat and complacent. Grace is used to get us to repent. And so it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And right away, that word work, we don't like. Work, but that's antithetical to grace. No, it's not. If you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it will be because God's given you the grace to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so then you want to say, well, then don't tell me to do it because then it'll be work salvation. I say, yeah, it is work salvation. No, 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 we're Protestants. No, we're not Protestants, we're Christians. And the Bible says, and you say, would you stop quoting the Bible to me? I mean, don't you know that I need a story? I need a narrative. We got to change the message to suit the people. (laughs) You know, we need stories. We have a superior story. I say, no, the Bible says work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You're so contrarian, Tim. Would you just modify the message a little bit? I'm ready and willing to work out my salvation with fear and trembling, knowing it's God at work within me. If you could just tell me a story that you're a broken man and that it took you a long time to understand that text. I say, okay, I'm a broken man. And it just hurts 
<laughs> Who was that laughter for? <laughs> you know, kids think that when their parents tell them to do something, it's because their parents feel superior. And that's almost never the case. The reason we tell them to do something is that we see our sin and we want them not to sin the sin we sent. And so, listen, it was the grace of God that caused the church in Corinth to make the commitments they made financially. And then they're responsible for fulfilling those commitments. And the only way they can is by the grace of God. And we live in that spot in between responsibility and God's grace. And if we try to overwhelm our responsibility by pattering on about God's grace, we're not biblical. It's a violation of Scripture, and you see it right here where the Apostle Paul three times says it's God's grace, any giving is God's grace, and the whole text is him trying to get them to do God's grace. Do you see this? You have to live biblically. And it is always central to flattering false pastors that they tell you that they have a logical way of thinking about things that you can escape the pain of your life. That's the essence of false shepherds. Is they're always flattering you that you can get what you want, which is salvation, but avoid the pain that Scripture commands. All right, grace and giving are not antithetical. Yes, he owns the, th- the cows on a thousand hills, or the cattle. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Everything comes from him. He's the father of the heavenly lights. Every good and perfect gift descends from him. Yep, 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 it's all true. He is omnipotent. There's nothing he can't do. He's omniscient. There's nothing he doesn't know. We can't do one thing that he doesn't make us able to do. Yep, 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 yep. Now, give money. Honestly, that's what the Apostle Paul's saying. He doesn't need to be taught about the importance of grace, the Apostle Paul. And the whole thing here is him wheedling and cajoling them to give money. Right? Do you all see this? Okay, so let's keep going. In a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy, their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Now, that's a nasty phrase. Because liberal's bad enough, but wealth of liberality? Yikes. I remember my dad used to go to an Assemblies of God college out in Missouri to speak at their chapel services and spiritual emphasis week, and he came home one time. And he said the big controversy was that that the, uh, the, the professors wanted to rename their school Liberal Arts College. And all the conservative Christians that supported the school were absolutely opposed to calling it a Liberal Arts College. And, you know, it's similar here where he says, the wealth of their liberality... And yet, 
Where does the concept of a benevolent society come from? I mean, honestly, can't you see that this text oozes a benevolent society? From each according to their means to each according to their need. So that there will be equality. You know, liberals have not invented the concept of a benevolent society. They can't invent it. All they can do is be a leech on it. It is Christian. And so this is what the Apostle Paul's doing. He's talking and he's saying we need a wealth of liberality. I testify according to their ability and beyond their ability they gave her their own accord. And then he says this, and this is a trip. He says, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. So here's a poor church that's being persecuted, and they're begging the Apostle Paul for the opportunity to give more. And this reminds us of what? Well, it reminds us of the time in the Old Testament where we read about the, uh, Moses getting the people together to build the temple. And in Exodus 36, we read, Now Bezalel and Ahaliah, and every skillful person in whom the Lord had put skill. See, there that is again. You see it? Every skillful person in whom the Lord had put the skill. Who has put skill in And so in other words, that's all Mike is. He's just some idiot that God has put a skill in. That's all your mother is. That's all your dad is. God has put in certain ones of us the ability to build. All right? Every skillful person in whom the Lord has put skill and understanding to know how to perform all the work in the construction of the sanctuary shall perform in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. Then Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every skillful person. And if you didn't get it the first time, here it comes again. In whom the Lord had put skill. And then it says this, everyone whose heart stirred him. To come to the work to perform it, they received from Moses all the contributions which the sons of Israel had brought to perform the work and the construction of the sanctuary. And they still continued bringing to him free will offerings every morning, you know. So there's a place you go and you get coffee. And how much do you spend on your coffee? If you skin flint, you go to McDonald's and you get it for what, a buck fifty? Maybe you go to Starbucks. And you say, oh, I would never go to Starbucks. And I say, oh, really? Okay. Well, I know that we're selling a lot of soda pop out in that place to pay for the soda pop in this place. You know, this, the workmen get to use this free. So that is the way we fund this. Did you know that? So every time you buy soda pop over at that one, you make us able to give away free soda pop in this one. Okay. And, and there's a lot of people that buy soda pop. So every single morning, instead of buying a soda pop, they brought money to the church. You see, that's what's going on here, right? It says that they came every morning. And all the skillful men who were performing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work he, which he was performing. And they said to Moses, now listen to this. They said to Moses, the people were bringing much more than enough. <laughs> 
for the construction work which the Lord commanded us to perform. So Moses issued a command and a proclamation was circulated throughout the camp saying, let no man or woman any longer perform work for the contributions of the sanctuary. Thus the people were restrained from bringing any more. For the material they had was sufficient and more than enough for all the work to perform it. The early church father Chrysostom, commenting on the Macedonians, pleading, let us do more, he says this, he says, the Macedonians did the begging, not Paul. Come on, Paul, we can do more. Come on, try it and see what we can do. Don't sell us short. We can do much more. Just give us a minute or a week, you'll see. So the believers in Macedonia looked at their giving as a great privilege, and they loved it. Why? Verse 5, they first gave themselves to the Lord, and then to us by the will of God. They gave themselves to the Lord, and to us by the will of God. (coughs) You know what Jesus said in Matthew 6.21? He said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the opposite is true. Where your heart is, there your treasure is also. So, if you want to know where your heart is, look at where your treasure is. I remember um, a number of years ago, there was a man in this church that had many, many millions. And this man decided that he was going to invest money in a, I won't tell you what it was, but it was, he was going to invest money. And he came to church and he began to talk up his investment to everybody, trying to get everybody to get on the bandwagon with his investment. And I did not say anything. Although, if you know me, you know I can't stand people that use the church to try to make money. It's a pet peeve of mine because I had a guy come to me when I had just gotten out of high school. And he tried to get me to go in on one of his, you know, and I just, it felt wrong to me. You know, he wasn't offering me a job. So anyhow, this guy started talking up his investment in the church and this, that, and the other thing. And, you know, you know what happened. He lost all his money. And then he stopped talking up his investment. I waited about two years to say this to him. He was a very dear friend of mine at the time. And I said to him, I said, you know, say his name is Bob. I said, Bob, you know that you made that investment and it's gone. And you will never get it back. But do you know if you'd given that money to God, it would be waiting for you in heaven, pressed down, running over. Now, I'm not against investing. But you watch your heart. Because everybody else knows you love money. Everybody else sees where your heart points. You know that, right? Everybody else knows whether you love money. And Jesus says you can't love God and money. You just can't do it. And let me, let me assure you, poor people, 
relative deprivation, poor people are absolutely perfectly capable of loving money just as much as rich people are. Oh, man. I won't even get off on that one. I can remember when I lived out east how I would brag about the suits I'd found in the resale shops. And the stuff I'd pulled out of the dumpster because I used to dumpster dive to get our food. And I'm telling you, nobody was as uh, uh, proud and materialistic about food. You know, I'd find this whole box of Philadelphia cream cheese with strawberries. You know, it wasn't just Philadelphia cream cheese. It was, it was Philadelphia cream cheese. And so poor people can be unbelievably materialistic and greedy. Romans 12.1, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. How, you want to know how to worship God? Give him your body. How do you give God your body? First of all, you're sexually pure. Do you hear me? You can't give money and be sexually impure. That doesn't cut it. You know, I hear God, I give you money and I'll be sexually impure. And so, no, it doesn't work like that. You start with sexual purity. We're a people set apart, right? Present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice. But then, how do you give yourself to God? You give him your money. You love God with your money. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so here, he sends Titus to them and he says, you know, we urge Titus, verse 6, that as he'd previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge. And you remember at the beginning I said that the Apostle Paul is doing what a, a mother or dad would do, you know, a little bit of stroking of the cheek and a little bit of, you know, punching you and slapping you and then a little cheek and stuff. Well, this is a slap. Because remember what we've seen about the Corinthians, about how proud they are about their prophetic gift and about speaking in tongues and everything. And you read this kind of thing, and you, don't, you forget the context, and so it just seems like it's more spiritual gobbledygook, you know? And faith and utterance and knowledge. and Oh, yeah, faith and utterance and knowledge. Remember, the Corinthians were so proud of their faith and their utterance, there's prophetic words and speaking in tongues, and their knowledge. There was nothing the Corinthians were prouder of than their knowledge. Right? And he says, uh, but just as you abound in everything. Now, come on, you feel it, right? You abound in everything. Yes, we abound in everything. Yep, that's true. You abound in faith and utterance. Yes, that's true. We abound in faith and utterance and knowledge. And in all earnestness and in the love we inspired, and you see that you abound in this gracious work also. That's just like a mother. You know? <laughs> you know? <laughs> she understands how important you are and how you do abound. See that you abound in this also. And it's like, Paul, are you ever satisfied? 
<laughs> you know? How about if we just abound in faith and knowledge, you know? How about if we don't abound in giving? And then he wheedles and cajoles, and here he cajoles. I'm not speaking, verse 8, I'm not speaking this as a command. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> you should be laughing when you read the Apostle Paul. <clears throat> Often, not dismissively laughing, but laughing because he's got your number. You know, I don't say this is a command. It's like when he says in Philemon, you know, I'm not even going to mention the fact that you owe me your very life. Uh, Paul, what did you just do? Well, I mentioned the fact that you owe me your very life, but I'm not going to mention that. Listen, until you know what Jews are like as Jews, you can't understand the Apostle Paul. He's a Jew. He's not a Midwesterner. Okay? And he has a job to do, and like Galatians, he throws everything, including the kitchen sink in. You know? And you just never know whether you're okay with the Apostle Paul or whether there's something else he wants. Okay? Now, a couple principles and then a little exhortation and we're done. First, it's okay to talk about money because when we talk about money, we talk about your heart. Okay? There's nothing wrong with it. And so watch your heart by watching your money. If you want to know where your heart is, look at your checkbook, look at your credit cards, okay? It's very simple. And this is not something that's true for rich people and not true for, and, 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 and poor people don't. And it's, and it's something for you young people. The minute you get a job, and I'm going to get to that in a second because all of you should be ashamed of yourselves if you don't have a job. All of you. But we're, we're getting to that in a second. All of you, from the time you earn money, you tithe. You start with a tithe. You always worship God with your money. And that's, even if you get an allowance, you start with giving a tenth of it to God, right? Melchizedek. Parents, if your kids don't know the story, teach it to them. All right. And so look at your checkbook, look at, look at your accounts, and see where your heart is, and then discipline yourself to give money to God. And if you do, it's because God has made you able to discipline yourself by giving money to God. Don't be proud of it. You know, when it comes to the church, the people who resent giving money to God are the people who are always complaining about the finances of the church. People who complain are people who don't love God. And so their goal is to minimize their sense of obligation financially to the church and you see it all the time. People who love God with their money are people who are just dropping the money and forgetting what their left hand has done or their right hand has done. They just forget it, all right? Um, give in a disciplined, regular, and intentional way. In 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthians again in the first letter, and he says, Now concerning the collection for the saints... As I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. And then he says this, On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. It's very interesting that he says that he wants it done on the first day of the week. He's not there. And he wants it done in such a way that when he arrives, 
It's all there. I don't want to have to keep track of your giving, and I don't want to have to be at my wit's end and, and have to preach a sermon like this, although I think it's good for us, right? It's good for me to hear this sermon. Um, but would you please do it in a disciplined way? You voted on a budget. F- okay, okay. I've never said this to one of my churches, but I'm going to say it now. If you approve a budget, would you please, every single year, it doesn't matter which church it is, every single year, you know, you get to the end of your fiscal year and you have to say to the people, we're behind. I would just like, once before I retire, to be able to tell a congregation, you you kept your commitment, thank you, and we don't need anything. I mean, I'd die and go to heaven. And you know, we have a few people in this church that are capable of doing this on their own. (laughs) You know? And I know who they are. For heaven's sakes, I'm all in. You all know I'm in. And if you don't think I'm all in, I guarantee that David Carell is all in. My goodness, he doesn't even have a home to call his own. There's always people being counseled, small groups. He doesn't own that house. I keep saying to David, David, let us take it over as a parsonage. Because then you won't have to pay income or property taxes on it anymore. You know? And if David Carell isn't all in, what about Annie? She's the one that has to live with you people in her house all the time. And Annie's a homebody. And what about my wife? And then what about Lucas Weeks, for heaven's sakes? Do you know that at the end of the roof, I asked Mike Bowles, who's, who is a tough taskmaster, I said to him, I want you to rate all the men that were up on the roof. And you know what I really wanted Mike to have to say to me is that all of our pastors were hard workers. Because what? Every working man thinks pastors are a bunch of well, I, what I said to a plumber on the plane last night is I said, all pastors are women. I said, the French have a saying, there are three sexes, men, women, and clergymen. <laughs> and I wanted Mike to have to admit that the pastors of this church are men. And he admitted it. We weren't the top worker. The top worker was a programmer. which was really pretty funny. But we had a number of our pastors at the top of your list. Tell them. So look, our pastors work hard. What about my wife, huh? She's not here so I can talk about her. I would never talk about her if she were here. That's a joke. Mary Lee's all in. She will cry with you. So, take the load off our shoulders. Give money so that we don't have to worry about the money because we worry about your pain, we worry about your sin, we worry about your children. I don't mean worry, worry, but you know what I mean. We bear those burdens happily. We even put the roof on the stinking building. So, do your part. Now, one final thing. And this is just a hint of a sermon I'm going to give. And I will be done 
in two minutes. And that's a promise, because I'm leaving in two minutes. Those of you who are young men, start working. Ben, start working. Get a job. Go out and ask if you can mow all your neighbor's lawns. And don't worry about your schoolwork. There's no end to schoolwork. All right? You should work with your hands. When I was in ninth grade and 10th or 8th and ninth, I cleaned stables. And that's not glamorous. And then when I got into 10th grade, I got a job in the morning all summer in Elgin, and I was very happy to get the job of cleaning a cheap motel's bathrooms every morning. And it's the most liberating work you can ever have because if you spend time cleaning stables and bathrooms, you don't ever have to worry about who you are. Do you understand me? I want us as a church to raise young men who work and who love to work because when you get tempted by your lusts in a few years, it'll be such a relief to be tired. And you'll go to sleep and you'll sleep like a baby. So learn to love work, okay? Because work is wonderful. It takes your attention off your pleasures and your lusts, you know? And isn't it a relief to be a man and to not be thinking about your pleasures and your lusts? Okay, I told you in in a little while, I'll give that sermon in a longer version. But parents, make your children work right now. Listen, when I was in fourth, fifth, sixth grade, Guess who did, cleaned up the entire kitchen every single night and Sunday lunch? I did. Guess who cleaned the bathrooms of my home? Guess who cut the lawn? And the lawn was almost an acre and it was a push mower. It wasn't self-propelled. I did. Why did I do it? Was my mother and my dad, were they abusive? Well, I don't think my dad ever cut the lawn. Listen, work is a gift. Teach your children to work. You can't have a lot of children if your children don't do the work. Come on. I know it's hard work teaching your children to work. And mothers, if your husband's going to teach your children to work, just be quiet and let them break the eggs so there's an omelet. Okay, let's pray.